Well, let me uh, greet those who are with us online this morning from wherever you happen to be. Glad to have all of you here. I've not had a turn in this summer series yet, so I'm looking forward to introducing you to today's nobody in just a moment. But before I do, I want to acknowledge that there's kids in the room right now. And for those of you kids that are grades three to six and you're registered, now is the time for you to go and meet your leaders at the back of the auditorium. There's some folks holding up big signs. You see them right back there. And I make your way to those leaders and they will be happy to take you to your activities. I'm really glad we can have some of the kids with us uh, for the worship portions of our service. And I just want to give a quick shout out to the large team that was part of this last week's uh, beach camp, those day camps we did for kids. Uh, I was able to walk through a couple times through the week and see this activity, and there was a whole team of leaders that spent every day this week, nearly every day this week, uh, here serving. So just a huge thank you. You made a difference in kids' lives and in families' lives, so that's just awesome to see our church come together in that way. So the extraordinary nobody that I'm going to focus on this morning is a seemingly insignificant dude from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. His name is Melchijah, and pretty much everything we know about him comes from one verse in Nehemiah. We'll get to that in a second. So this person, Melchijah, he's seemingly insignificant. That idea by itself led me to start doing some reading this week on the subject of significance and insignificance. Some people believe that our striving for significance, our longing to be someone or something, to be significant or be extraordinary, is actually potentially harmful. It produces sometimes worry and anxiety, all kinds of mental health struggles. And it's true that some of us are probably too obsessed over outcomes, outcomes that we deem are good or bad. We worry about a lot of things. We worry about whether we'll marry or who will marry. We agonize about how much money or how much do we need to retire. We strive professionally. We obsess over career success and the approval of others, like friends and family. What do they think of what we're doing? We worry about whether the next elected official will share our convictions or if our uh, kids will be successful and do the things that we hope that they will do. At higher socioeconomic levels, we fret about completing some of those items on the bucket list. We wonder if we'll get to those amazing places and do enough culturally you know, enriching activities so that we have just a, a healthy worldview. We fear about the future. We worry about missing out on some opportunities. We worry about our legacy. That's just really common. We stress over a lot of those things. So as I was doing some digging on this, I, I came across a website by uh, someone who writes under the name The Happy Philosopher. And there was a post from April which talked about how it might be helpful to embrace insignificance. Now, the case they were making is that we are just so insignificant. You know, Jesse was talking about that a few minutes ago, about you know, yet we, we worship this God who we sense really cares about us. But this sort of philosophical bent was saying, embrace insignificance. And they kind of did this post which tried to help us understand how insignificant we are. Among the reasons they suggest it's, it's helpful to embrace insignificance, they're basically making the case for our insignificance. They said, we are a primitive humanoid, all of us, existing on a small planet orbiting a tiny star in a pedestrian solar system on the edge of a vast galaxy that we have no hope of understanding even a minuscule fraction of. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. 
and contains as many as 300 billion stars. The closest one other than the sun is Alpha Centauri, which is roughly 4.2 to 4.4 billion light years away. It would take 100,000 years to reach it using conventional rocket technology. There are probably as many as 100 billion planets in our galaxy alone. The Milky Way is a perfectly ordinary galaxy in the universe, which perhaps contains billions of other galaxies. The known observable universe is around 92 billion light years across. The known observable universe will likely expand as our technology allows us to see it. And it's also unknown if this is the only universe or if we're part of a multiverse, there may be billions of other life forms on billions of other planets having all the same issues we have or not. We, we, we might be all alone. And commentary like this is just words and numbers and concepts. The human mind is not even fully capable of understanding the scale of our insignificance. And so the post just goes on and on and on about how embracing insignificance is a path to liberation and freedom. One more quote. They said, realizing that nothing you do in life is permanent, lasting, or meaningful in the grand scheme of the universe is the way to go. Just let go and let be. Once you understand the truth of your insignificance, everything becomes more meaningful. Once you realize that you don't matter, Everything matters. You buying it? Uh, I'm not sure how I felt about that. I, I felt like dwelling on my own insignificance kind of created a little despair, a little nihilism in me. Yet, yet, there's got to be a better way to live than to do it just constantly striving for followers and likes and promotions and raises and toys and social status. So our summer series, Extraordinary Nobodies, is intended to produce something in you other than nihilism and despair. We're looking at some biblical characters who are a lot like us, seemingly insignificant people playing a small role in something bigger than themselves. And that really is sort of what I hope you take from these messages, this series, uh, a perspective, a, a posture, a capacity for finding meaning and fulfillment and being part of a bigger story, God's story. So that's how I'd like you to think about Malchijah. He's just one guy among many, one face in the crowd who responds to an invitation to be part of something bigger than himself. And I'll get to that single verse from Nehemiah that describes him in a moment. But first, let me give you a little context. Uh, the book of Nehemiah, we think, is the last of the historical documents of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture. The Old Testament is the story of the Hebrew people. And if we look at it chronologically, near the end of the Old Testament record, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed and everybody's taken captive in Babylon. They're taken to a place in Babylon. And then about 70 years later, a band of Jews comes back to Jerusalem and Melchijah is a descendant from that group of Jews. And when they return, Jerusalem is trashed. It has absolutely been uh, left in ruins. It's been burned. It's rubble. There's very little left. 
And of major concern is the, the city's walls are gone. They're destroyed. This is a time in history when cities need walls to keep out the influence of uh, others. To kind of, that's their main source of protection. Without walls, you can't really you know, push back against threats. A city without a wall in these days is about as secure as a mall parking lot at 2 a.m. I mean, just all kinds of crazy things can go on. So to rebuild those walls, it's going to take a monumental effort involving a whole vast array of highly organized and motivated people. And Melchijah is one of these people. He's a bit player, though. He's just a face in the crowd among a whole bunch of other workers. So Nehemiah chapter 3, if you're going to read this chapter, I, you, know, you probably won't because it's a real dull chapter. It's pretty much just names and places, names and, and parts of the wall. There's a reason why I don't think I've ever done a sermon from Nehemiah chapter 3, because it's really just a very stale, very dry list. So I'm going to give you a, a, a taste of that here for just a second. Here's what I mean. This is the unfolding story of Nehemiah from chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest and the other priests, started to rebuild at the Sheep Gate. They dedicated it. They set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and the Tower of Hananel. People from the town of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zakur, son of Imri. The Fish Gate was built by the sons of Hassanah. They laid the beams, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Merimah, son of Uriah, and grandson of Hakaz, repaired the next section of the wall. Beside him were Meshulam, son of Berechiah, and grandson of Meshezebel, and then Zadok, son of Baana. You feeling lost in a crowd yet? <laughs> just sort of, <laughs> the whole chapter's like this, just goes on and on and on and on and on. There's 10 more verses like the, one I just, the ones I just read before we actually get to our guy, Melchijah. So I'm going to skip ahead to where we pick up his name in verse 14. The dung gate was repaired by Melchijah, son of Rechab, the leader of the Beth Hakerim district. By the way, don't miss that little detail. It's important for later. I'll come back to that. He rebuilt it, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. By the way, I woke up at 5.30 this morning with my, these names going through my head. I was so trying so hard to, I think I nailed it pretty good there. I felt pretty good about that. That's probably the best I could do anyway. <laughs> I'm an absolute dork. <laughs> so based on, based on what little we know about this guy, do you think Melchijah felt like a somebody? Like, okay, there's very little in the record here, so we're going to have to do some speculating, some filling in the blanks, some reading between the lines. Do you think he felt extraordinary? By the way, Melchijah is a common name, historically. Uh, the Old Testament actually lists a number of Melchijahs. Uh, a couple of scholars think there may be one other reference to the same guy among those other Melchijah references, but most of the scholars think this is all we got here. This is the only mention of him in the scriptures. So a couple things we probably know about him. He's a volunteer. He sets aside what may be perhaps a lucrative or at least a paid leadership position to give several months of his life to this building project, which would be dirty and laborious work on the hot Middle Eastern sun, beaten up hands and feet. This is going to be hard, hard work. All the while knowing that participation in the project is not likely to lead to significance. 
Taking responsibility for a section of the wall is not going to make him a somebody. He's just one of many faces in the crowd playing a small role in something bigger than him. And I wish I knew why. I really wish we knew more about his motivation. Again, we have to fill in some blanks here. But I do think it's worth reflecting on a guy like Melchizedek because I suspect he knows he's not a big deal. Maybe he knows he's one of many. He probably never imagines that thousands of years later, people like us would sit around and talk about him. He's a nobody. But in my mind, he's an extraordinary nobody. And at the risk of creating some further despair and nihilism, what I was talking about earlier, um, let's just own something here. It's unlikely that anybody's gonna be talking about us years and years down the road. Fun fact, did you know around 109 billion people have lived on the planet? Which means that if there's roughly 8 billion people alive right now, that means today only 7% of the human beings who've ever lived are currently alive. So that means 100 billion people came before us and most of whom, almost all of whom, are not being talked about anymore, a staggering, amount, the staggering majority of of all of us are nobodies. Most of us will spend our lives not as influencers, but faces in the crowd. That's just the truth. But Malkaija discovered a way to live a meaningful and fulfilled life while being a face in the crowd. And so I want to learn from his example. I want to find meaning in being part of God's story. I want to find meaning in being part of something bigger than me. Malkaija hears that God is up to something and he wants to be part of it, even if it means just being another face in the crowd. So in the weeks leading up to his volunteering, another Jewish countryman, Nehemiah, returns from exile as well in Babylon. And just like Malkaija, Nehemiah is also a governor. Much of the book of Nehemiah is written in the first person. We think, uh, therefore, that he's the author of it, maybe with Ezra helping him. And it's in the opening section where his burden to repair the walls is described. Nehemiah is a man of action. He's a leader. And from the moment he arrives back in Jerusalem, he uses his gifts, his passions to motivate others to get the job done. So he organizes, he manages, he supervises, he encourages, he challenges, he confronts injustice. He keeps on going until the walls are built. He casts vision. He says, the God of our ancestors is writing the next chapter of his story, his story, his story in our lives. So here's a condensed version of his stump speech, the smallest portion here recorded in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. But now I, by the way, he's speaking to a crowd of potential workers. They've not responded yet, so he's trying to get them to sign up. He says to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Now, again, filling in the blanks, I assume just because I know enough about human nature that some of the listeners are going to resist a little bit. Why? I I get why we need a wall. Nobody's going to argue that, but why should we be the ones to do it? Can we? We don't think we can pull this off. And he continues, then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. 
So what Nehemiah is doing here is he's telling them that God is at work. God's hand is at work. God is up to something. God is writing the next chapter of his story. He's already at work in Nehemiah. He makes it personal. He's already at work in the life of a powerful person, the king, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so he says to his fellow Jews, what God intends will not come to fruition unless you all play a part, you all take a role, unless you step into the story yourself. So what do you say? Come on, you want to be part of the story. And here's how they respond. Here's the rest of verse 18. They replied at once, okay, we're in. Yes, let's rebuild the wall. And so they began the good work. Malchijah's probably in that crowd. He responds, he's one of the yeses. Nobody has to convince him of the problem. Everybody sees the problem. They just need to be convinced that they're part of the solution. Believing that God is writing the next chapter in their story, in his story, right there through them, is what frees Melchijah and permits him, even motivates him to become a nobody. It frees him up to embrace being a face in the crowd, to find fulfillment in being something, being part of something bigger than himself. He's going to be part of something that will last into eternity. Little quiz time. I we won't kind of you know pass the microphone here, but you know I wonder how many of you could actually name a significant Edmontonian from 50 years ago, local somebody's from 50 years back, the people in the headlines in 1973. Now I recognize there's a few people in the room who well, yeah I remember a certain politician, maybe a professor, maybe a, an athlete or something like that. Maybe you can name. Uh, you know, somebody by whom a school was named after or a neighborhood, some Alberta notable, but uh, hardly any of us can remember who the big movers and shakers were from 50 years ago, who had the most money, who were the socialites at the time. We can't really name too many extraordinary people from 50 years ago locally. I know I can't. Even if you become the biggest somebody in the room, here's the reality. In 50 years, hardly anybody is going to remember you or what you did or even care about it. So why do we care so much about being a somebody when we can be part of a story that doesn't have an expiration date? Why do we obsess over our personal legacies when just like Melchijah, we've been given an opportunity to be part of something with an eternal legacy? Despite what you might think sometimes, especially after watching the news and looking around at the state of the world and the church, God is not done writing his story. He's still going. If you're familiar with the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, maybe you've heard this, maybe you know this. I hadn't really thought about this until I heard a pastor named Patrick Miller point this out, but all four of those Gospels, those accounts of the life of Christ, they end kind of abruptly. They don't really have proper conclusions. They just kind of stop and then you jump next to the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church and the disciples of Jesus as they give birth to the ministry of the church. That ends abruptly as well. There's no wrap-up. There's not like a clean, tidy ending, which I'm thinking may be the point in the way it's recorded because God's story has no ending. God's story has no ending because it's still going on. It's still being written. I don't know if we're in chapter 10 or 25 or 75 or 224. And it really doesn't matter. What matters is that God is writing his story right now in our lives. At this time, we are living history, his 
story. And I wonder if you believe that. Do you believe that you've got a place, that you've got a role to play in God's story? Do you believe that God is writing his story in your life and in your home and in your family, in your school, in your neighborhood, at your desk, in the shop where you work, at the restaurant where you serve? Do you believe that God is still writing his story in and through this church? If you don't, well... This message probably isn't going to land very well for you, and you may not really sense that there's even a meaningful existence despite being mostly a face in the crowd. So let's get practical here. How do, uh, what does this look like? How is a person supposed to respond and begin to occupy their place in God's story? Well, let's go back to Malkaijah one more time. Let him continue to be our guide. Look one more time at the single verse, Nehemiah 3.14. The dung gate, that's the part we need to talk about, was repaired by Malkaijah. He rebuilt it, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and its bars. The question that should have come across your mind as you read that or heard that the first time is, what's a dung gate? What is that? Um, a dung gate is probably what you think it is, uh, almost exactly what you think it is. Uh, when a whole bunch of people live in close proximity, and this is before pipes and sewers and proper toilets and all of that kind of stuff to carry away waste, it's up to each family unit to collect their human refuse and dispose of it. So the human and animal waste and rotten food and all that kind of stuff, it has to be carted out. It has to be somehow collected, gathered up, and trucked down and taken to the burning dump outside the gates of the city. And guess which gate everybody transport their sloshing buckets of stuff through? The dung gate. Very good. Yeah, not a trick question. It's very clear what it is. They go through the dung gate. Now consider what motivates somebody, anybody, to volunteer to rebuild that section of the wall. I don't imagine that Malkaijah is going to take out-of-town guests, you know, when they come visit in a few years. Hey, let me take you to the part of the wall. I, nobody, it's not a tourist destination. Nobody posts TikToks and selfies next to the dung gate. It's not the place to hang out. It's gross. It's, it's foul-smelling. It's unattractive. Nobody wants their name on a project like this. And I don't know why or how Malkaijah becomes the man for the job. What I do know is that working on this section of the wall is one of the least desirable of all of the sections. You'd expect the person taking this section to be one of the least known, least influential people in the community. But remember that part about him being a, a governor. He's not completely anonymous. He's somewhat known. He's a leader in a nearby district. So think like, you know, counselor or commissioner, city commissioner, mayor, something like that. He's got a leadership role in the community. And that makes me wonder whether maybe all the leaders kind of did some hard stuff because maybe they all responded to the challenge. They got together and said, hey, let's all, you know, set the tone. Let's lead by example. Sometimes leaders got to do that. We all got to roll up our sleeves and, and set the tone here. Maybe they all did that to inspire other people to participate. But according to verse 5, it's not the case. Look at this. Next were the people from Tekoa. Tekoa is a nearby city. Some people from Tekoa joined the cause and, and joined the rebuilding, but definitely not all. The leaders don't. Their leaders refuse to work with the construction supervisors. Their nobles, their leaders, they're not going to get their hands dirty. They're not going to get involved in this kind of back-breaking labor. They think they're above this kind of work. But Malkaijah doesn't see it this way. Not only does he volunteer, but he says, I'll take, I'll take that section. I'll take the, the worst job. Put me down for the dung gate. 
Again, we're reading between the lines. This is certainly speculative, but I wonder if he understands something that a lot of you know. Sometimes taking a role in God's story is unglamorous. Contributing to God's kingdom-building agenda quite often means sacrificial service and serving in places like the Dungate. I'm thinking about the large number of people in this congregation, this church, who get this. I'm thinking about some of the humble leaders who are, as we speak, downtown, passing out meals, blessing people, caring for people. They show up almost every weekend in our street ministry we call We Care to encourage and feed and inspire and bless some of the most marginalized members of the community. Even on Sunday mornings in January when it's minus 25, those hard days to go do that, they faithfully go. I'm thinking of some SPAC members who quietly build schools in impoverished communities in Latin America out of the proceeds of their business. Or the couple from our church who several times a year opens up their home for weekend retreats for women caught in addiction and prostitution. And I'm thinking about Caleb and Amy. You know, Caleb's a teacher. He can earn a decent living and enjoy a great schedule, summer's off, two weeks at Christmas time, all the major holidays. Caleb and Amy live right here in Sherwood Park. They could stay in their home. They could take their kids to the spray parks and go to Folk Fest in the summertime and go skiing in the winter and, and really have a great life. But in a couple of weeks, they're gonna, they're gonna walk away from some creature comforts and from their parents and from their friends. And they're gonna try to make a difference in one of the world's most dangerous cities. You heard him talk about it, 4.5 million people in greater Cape Town. Employment, unemployment, about 35%. 50% of the women in that region claim to be victims of physical or sexual abuse. Caleb and Amy aren't going to change South Africa by themselves, but they're going to change a little part of it. Their own little dungate. So listen, do you want to see God's story unfolding on earth as it is in heaven? If you do, it's not that hard to see. And it doesn't necessarily require some crazy thing. It just allows, it just requires you to pay attention. It, it includes moments like the sacred art, the sacred act of changing your child's diaper or cleaning up your roommate's dishes joyfully, cheerfully. It's driving a, an hour out of your way to go care for your mom who has dementia. There's a whole Bible story that could be written just in and of something like that. It means going the extra mile to help a client who's a pain to work with, but because you're a professional and you want to help them get the best deal possible. That right there can be a parable. It might mean taking on a project that nobody else wants to work on. That's a story worth hearing about. It means grabbing lunch sometimes with the person that nobody else sits with for whatever reason, because that's grace. If we spend our lives clamoring for attention, trolling for followers, striving to be somebody, we will never repair a dungate and possibly miss out on finding our place in God's story. If you're fighting to be a somebody, you're not going to be motivated to take a humble role and you may not like these kind of messages. But here's the deal. Jesus saved us by living one of these stories. So is it any surprise that he alone is the one who gives grace to nobodies, that gives us the grace to be a face in the crowd. So let me just leave a couple questions running through your minds here at the end of this. You know, where are the dung gates in your life? You know, 
the tough jobs, the dirty jobs, those hard relationships, the stuff everybody else avoids. These places can be like stages for God's eternal story. And one final thought. Again, I just want to make this really, um, really clear. Finding your place in God's story won't always require that you do something dramatic like moving to South Africa. You can find your place in some of the most ordinary moments too. In fact, I think that's where we find it more often. We don't need to do the dramatic and self-sacrificing thing to, to experience this. We've got all kinds of ordinary moments in our ordinary days when we're doing ordinary things where we're just faces in the crowd. We can be one face in the crowd in a big school, a big town, a big church, or a big workplace. We can live under the radar existences in cubicles, in day homes, and on the job sites. And can God redeem those moments and those places? Can he take these ordinary moments and create worth and value and meaning? Can we experience God's purpose in these moments? I say absolutely yes. I say yes because it's in the most ordinary moments of your life where God is with you. God is guiding you. He's strengthening you. God's unfolding his story, his kingdom through you. So when there's a messed up kitchen to clean or a mountain of laundry to fold, when you're paying bills or scrambling to get that project in on time, Jesus is with you. When you know there's a conversation you need to have and it might not go well, Jesus is with you, guiding you, teaching you, coaching you. Practice his presence. And here's what it can look like. Oftentimes, it's just two or three or four seconds, just when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling scared, when you wake up at 5.30 worried that you're not gonna be able to say Malkaija properly, try quoting, try quoting 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7, 1 Peter 5, 7, lock it in, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When you're headed into that meeting that you are not sure is going to go well, that conversation with a family member, a boss, or a doctor, grab a verse from some of the songs that we sing around here sometimes, including one of the ones we sang this morning to start our service. Bring all your failures, bring your addictions, bring whatever it is that you're carrying and lay it down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting there with open arms. Let a melody like that get stuck in your head. Ask God to help you develop the reflex to recognize his presence in your life whenever you're doing pretty much anything. When you're driving out the parking lot, when you pull out your phone to check email or Instagram, in these moments, just pause for two or three seconds and pray a quick prayer and just make yourself aware that you are in his presence, he is with you and you are with him. Just two or three seconds. Do that when you're pulling the toddler out of a crib. Pray and sing a little song to God. And when your head hits the pillow, pause, two or three seconds. Acknowledge your heavenly father. You'll be amazed at what happens when you practice the presence of Jesus in ordinary moments, these ordinary moments that are part of a bigger story. Jesus is with you now, just as you are. One person among billions, a face in the crowd, but he's with you. Count on it. Let me pray for you. Why don't you stand if you would and join me. So Heavenly Father, thank you for these crazy little parts of your scriptures that we can find meaning there even. And so I pray, God, that you would help us sort of embrace our little Malkaija status in our own lives as a face in the crowd, recognizing that 
uh, as we simply make ourselves available to you in these ordinary moments and sometimes in the big moments, you are with us and you are writing your story. Thank you that your work continues. It's not done. Thank you that that's true about us individually, but it's also true about us collectively. Thank you that you're writing your history and your story through us, through these good people and through our church. Make it so. Help us to see more of it as we pay attention and acknowledge your presence. Bless us as we go into this day and this week. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks very much for being here. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.